Hello, folks. This is Princess. You are listening to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends. It's tough. We're in a very tough spot. I think that what we're doing right now is of great benefit and virtue because it's an end around between this whole corrupt informational system, media system. We claim to believe in a God who spoke the universe into existence and literally raised himself from the dead. And yet we're not going to believe that anything else exists in the spirit realm, even though his word tells us that they do. Their bodies weren't permitted to go to sleep like humans do. And they weren't permitted to go to heaven. So they wander the earth. You know, I've seen the eyes turn black to unknown tongues being spoken. These giants would live way up in the highland. The young graves, the young men would hide up in the trees and wait for one of these 12 footers to come walking down the path and they would jump on them and kill them and drag them back to the village and the village would feast on the body. Then people start to get weapons, they start to get armor, they start to build cities, they start to fortify their cities. Now, God looks down and there's violence everywhere. The battle, this war that we are at, is not against each other. It's against these principalities and these rulers and these archons in the high places. It's really worthwhile to read the Bible yourself. Fear is one of the primary drivers of mind control because we have to take every thought captive and resist fear. You're going to have a testimony that is a justice case against the kingdom of darkness. Welcome back to the Millennial Mustard Seed. I am your host, Rod, and thank you for being here with me for another awesome episode. I'm joined by Gary Wayne. We did a mini-series together. This is the part one. We jump into a ton of topics, and here's some of the highlights. We talk about the significance of stars. What branch of the angelic order um, interacts with us humans the most? We talk about the Ophanum, the Cherubim, Seraphim, the Archons, the alien deception. We get into some prophecy. We talk about the Catholic Church's role in all of this, the bloodlines, occultism, and get your notepad and your pen out because that's just how this kind of stuff unfolds. Be on the lookout for a part two in the near future but for right now we lay quite an interesting foundation with some of the wilder questions i have and gary's the perfect guy to answer them being that he is a wealth of information so i'm going to ask you guys to leave me that five star rating and review on your favorite podcast catcher whatever app you decide to listen on if you have the ability to write us a written review do so and leave us five stars. It helps the algorithms. That's how you help the show grow. You'll also find details in the show notes of how you can donate to sow a seed into this ministry, help us in this season. And you can also find a link to Gary's website there. If you've never heard of him before, you're a new listener, you can find all of that in the details of the show notes. And I'm not gonna waste any more time because I am ready to jump into this episode. Are you guys ready? Let's go. Let's go. Hello, everybody. This is Gary Wayne, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 1 and soon to be released Part 2. And a welcome and warm invitation to join the Mustard Seed podcast that's about to begin now. Gary, it is an honor to be back with you here on the Mustard Seed, man. I think this is like your fifth or sixth appearance. Yeah, it's been a few years and... uh, What I do remember, and I don't remember all the shows I do, but I do remember the podcasters, and I do know that I get wonderful feedback from the shows that I do with you. So yeah, I just love being invited back onto your show and hopefully communicating information and connecting some dots for your audience that maybe they're having trouble put together or haven't thought about before. Yeah, and you know, 
I think everybody at this point knows who you are, Gary. You know, there's new listeners and I'm, I'm just the best way I can just, you know, kind of sum up what you do as a Christian contrarian and your prolific researcher. Um, just what you have webbed and weaved together through your writings and just your speech on these diverse different topics that all connect together have been helpful. And I think even some of the the big names out there are really giving you some heavy recognition at this point. So it's been interesting over the years, you know, interviewing you and just getting to know you and, and um, seeing how everything that you were laying a foundation for years and years ago is really becoming relevant in almost every topic of conversation today. So it's always an honor to get you back on air and to edify and to teach us here uh, about some of the strange things going on, man. So we'll just start this thing off. I'm going to shotgun some questions at you and we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Just before you do, I just wanted to say, you know, when I first got into this and, you know, I was just happy to get a book published, but what I was hoping to do was not really focused about selling the book, but if I could find a way to change the conversation a little bit and to have people look at things and take a step back in a way that they hadn't seen before. And I thought book one was that unique. And so book two, I wasn't sure I was going to write. And I decided to because of the angst that was out there. And it's as unique as as book one. And again, what I'm hoping to do with Christians even more so is change the conversation again, but in a deeper direction than what I did in book one and specifically targeted for Christians for the things that they're looking for. And and that's, that's very profound. So when we're targeting Christians, like actually one of the questions that I wanted to dive in with you, I'm going to kind of jump ahead of myself uh, just in my own thought process, but you know, prophecy is so heavily um, misunderstood and overlooked. And it's just kind of like, oh, that doesn't really exist. One third of the Bible's prophetic. And I think what you're doing is showing, you know, these connections and how relevant this is today. So targeting Christians is really important because we should know this stuff. We should be on the cutting edge. We, re- we, should, we should be on the cutting edge. And in, if, and if indeed we are in the fig tree generation, then our shepherds in the churches are not preparing us properly. And that is quite a tragedy and a catastrophe, lest we help ourselves and become a little bit more like the Bereans, or as I like to call myself a contrarian, and dig into these things. And that the ministers and the priests are taught in seminary schools not to teach prophecy and teach prehistory. And so they teach a lot of good stuff in between, and they don't know anything about the other two in any sort of significant detail. And they're teaching stuff that is that provides sort of the bookend meanings to all of the values that they're teaching. And people sort of walk away and say, I don't know what our resonator are. What's our really state of being? I really like the concepts of Christianity, but why are we here? And that's all in prehistory and prophecy, and they don't teach that. And all of the things that come out of what they do teach in the churches today are rooted in our history and why there's a resolution to our uh, destiny. Well, let me ask you this, and then we'll see what goes from here. But what has happened within the last hundred years that you think is the biggest hindrance to the body of Christ being able to process this information, not only that, but to have this open table discussion. What really swung the pendulum in favor of the enemy um, deceiving us and withholding this information, in your opinion? A complete takeover by polytheists at all levels of Christianity, whether it's the Roman Church or it's Protestantism. And with the resurgence of the Royal Society bringing about the sciences and modern science and education being now controlled outside the church by these organizations and then later captured through the Jesuits and reinstated through the Jesuits again uh, within the Roman church, is that you had a size of infiltration that changed the whole topic of what was going to be taught. And you see that in the allegorical interpretation. The Bible isn't always accurate. The Bible contradicts itself. And you should just be focusing on the major sort of concepts. And that has infiltrated right into church leadership 
uh, throughout the ranks. And so one needs to be on the lookout for the churches that they're attending. Do they have Masonic symbols in them? Do they have polytheist symbols in there? How much idolatry is in there? How are they changing the meanings from the literal sort of aspect? Because those are all signs that there's a leadership issue so that when you go and another thing is if you go up to your leaders of the church or a minister and you ask questions about prehistory or prophecy and they shun you away, that's a sign. And if you keep pushing, they're probably going to say, we're going to uh, ask you to leave, uh, where they should be trying to answer your questions. And I find it frustrating that the ministers and the teachers can't provide the basic answers to the hard questions and the basic questions that Christians are asking. And so it's been a process and it's been a preparation for a specific generation to create that godless generation or lack of knowledge of God and in a slanted polytheist manner as the book of Second T Timothy talks about and in preparation for the fig tree generation so that they can bring about the deceptions and the delusions that even the elect will be deceived if that were possible. And it is because Jesus warns us from us and then the book of Revelation tells us that he'll save us from the time of trial and from the year of the Lord's wrath and that all would be deceived unless he did and all flesh would be destroyed unless he stepped in. So I think it's been a contrived plan so that they can bring about, and I'm talking about they, it's the spurious polytheist globalist forces. The bloodlines are all part of the same Leviathan uh, conspiracy to not only enslave humankind, but to ensure we're white from the face of the earth and not to be, not to reach our destiny. Although the last couple thousand years has been more spite and misleading the followers of the invisible ones because they know the fate is already sealed, but there's still humankind whose names are written in the book of life who are still require the opportunity to leave their name in the book of life or have it blotted out. Very interesting. So what I would want to try to hone in on through all of that is with what we're experiencing, the level of warfare that some of us are willing to actually talk about today, right? Like a lot of people just, um, at surface glance, you go to church, Hey, everything's okay, but it's really not all okay. You know, we're seeing a level of misinformation and chaos and, um, personalized strategic attacks against individuals and all the way up to the macrocosm of the entire nation being shaken in these days that we live in and they, right? So let's talk a little bit about they and excellent, um, overview for, for my question there. I mean, it really, um, opened more doors and I just want to kind of dive into a little bit more of who they are and why do you think that so many people are afraid, Gary, to talk about or express or just be open, be honest with each other about what we're experiencing? I mean, there's warfare happening, um, mental warfare, it's spiritual and, and it's manifesting physical. I mean, there's a warfare against our finance, against our protection, everything on this country and the whole world. So uh, sorry, that's a bit of a sloppy question, but what does your mind do with all that? Yeah, so I would begin with that. It's absolutely astounding, amazing, and probably totally unbelievable from generations past, from let's say 150 years or so and more, that the preternatural nature of the Bible would be suppressed, not by the polytheists, but by the monotheists and the Christians. And that takes time to, 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 to sort of bring about. And so what seems to be the case is because... The agenda has created a crop for the fig tree generation uh, of leaders that don't know these topics and have been trained to suppress prophecy and prehistory that they are uncomfortable and unwilling and create a cognizant dissonance in their own faith that they don't know how to handle because they don't have enough faith in the totality of Scripture and only what they're told to teach do they have any confidence in. And that's unfortunate because there's no fear in understanding the whole context of the Bible. 
it's God's word. It has to be perfect. And it wow. is. Yeah. And so they don't want to get on that thin ice. They don't want to be stated to be extreme literalists or extreme right-wing Christians. They don't want to have to explain how evil spirits show up because that opens the door to the giants and they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about how our, our society has been organized in the feudal system or the four class system worldwide that they're trying to do to bring back after letting us out of the cage, so to speak, for the last couple hundred years in the West, they want to get rid of the middle class again and go back to the old feudal state where we'll be part of, if we're lucky, part of a small Taylor Baker uh, entrepreneurial class or a slave working class. And the rest is populated in the top two classes by the elites, by the bloodlines who control the church, the education, the sciences, the wealth, all of the businesses, and basically that less than 1% that people talk about today really have their thumbs down on us because this size of the middle class and the ability to get information now is something that they can't control and they have to get control of that. So it's this getting out on that, not only the peer pressure of the society, but the, the pressure and the, 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 Issues in terms of their lack of understanding of what's in the Bible to explain all the things that go on in the Bible. And that if you explain one thing, it leads into all of these other areas that just scares the heck out of them and they're not prepared to deal with. You know, you pray for our leaders that they have faith in God and Jesus. And, and fortunately, that's all that they're going to need, but they're going to be held to a higher standard because they're the leaders of the churches and they ought to be taking these issues on. But that's been a well-prepared plan to bring about the catastrophes of the fig tree generation to take on the God of the Bible in a war that they want. So they, they are composed of bloodlines. We're told biblically that there are the visible ones and the invisible ones. And the invisible ones are the spirit nature to the fallen angelic realm, although they can take a physical form. And the disembodied spirits of the giants that are counterfeit spirits and don't sleep and don't go back to heaven. Those are the invisible ones, but you also have a spurious offspring that not only includes the giants and the descendants of those giants, but other offspring that is talked about in, you know, sort of in a passing kind of way in the Bible as in the elementals that, um, you know, rule this world and, and put us in enslavement. These are the ones that answer to the invisible ones in the hierarchy. So you have a hierarchy of angels and you have a hierarchy on this earth. And so when we talked about what they control is the bloodlines through the, the giants uh, initially took over all the government of the world, took over all the armies of the world, took over the education and provided us with their history and what they wanted to have. And, their, and so there's obviously things in history that, you know, could be in there that we're not going to be taught. And so it's their view of the history. And so they have control of all of the major business all the way throughout history. These are ones that receive their divine right to rule from the Council of Gods on, in Psalms 82 over the 70 nations in Deuteronomy 32. And just as it was before the flood, as the number of sons of Adam are also counted at 70. And so you have the 70 patriarchs in the... Uh, Table of Nations in First Chronicles and in Genesis 10, which make up these 70 nations and also is counted by the amount of sons born to Jacob while in Egypt. And that is a prophetic aspect. So Deuteronomy 32 is kind of what I call a dual prophecy as important prehistory information for context understanding this world. It applies to the time of Israel, so the time of uh, Moses and and uh, and as the prophet receiving the Torah and 
it also has some end time implications. Uh, and of course, that has to do with what Israel's destiny is as well. So uh, you have this hierarchy that controls the thrones of the world to represent the thrones of the fallen angels that are a counterfeit of the throne of God. And exactly. you have you have a hierarchy on earth that goes down through the giants and the spuriously created ones like the elementals, which also includes the salamanders, which is a reptilian group that's taller than humans, as opposed to the little fairies, uh, with gnomes being the ones that look after the technology, have UAPs come through fairy domains with flying craft, and they're described identical to the greys. Uh, and they're all part of that hierarchical, visible, controlling influence over the earth that also aid the higher up uh, descendants of the Nephilim who rule. And you also have within that hierarchy uh, of the angels a complete order and rank that's a counterfeit of the host of heaven. And so if we look at the host of heaven, um, we understand that there are watchers. And if people aren't familiar with that term, Daniel 4 uses the term watcher four times. And it means uh, an angelic watcher as one who is watching from the throne, who is awake all, all the time. And those are four groups you have, Ophanim, which aren't recorded in the Bible, but that we get that in Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10. And these are the eyes that you're seeing within the wheels, within the wheels. The wheel part is Gilgal in Hebrew for wheel. And Ophan is the angel that's in, the angels that are within the wheels of the throne. Um, and that's the Hebrew word Ophan and the Ophanim as are recorded in the book of Enoch. And they have four faces. One is of a cherubim. We're not told which face of the cherubim, or does that one face have four faces? We're not told that either. Um, but it's distinct from the cherubim, who are also present in the throne of God, in the vision that Ezekiel received of, of heaven in Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10 again, and that these cherubim pull the chariot of God in the book of Psalms. And so you've got cherubim, you've got ophanim, you've got seraphim that work before the altar in Isaiah 6 as ministers, and they actually forgive uh, by taking a coal out of the, the altar to Isaiah, putting it to his lips, having his sins forgiven in preparation for the vision that he is about to receive. And these are the priests and the ones who also described as the watchers in Daniel 4 supply the governance uh, regulations and things uh, from from the thrones. And then you have the archangels. And typically the archangels aren't put in the hierarchy of angels from the old standard dogma that was essentially put together by Dionysius. And I cover him and his, his hierarchy off in my new book. And then I kind of restructure it because these archangels are around the throne. So they have to be part of the four. So you can't have just sort of three pillars you, I have it separated into four, although I have seraphim overseeing uh, three of them. So just, and I won't spend too much time on, on, on the hierarchy, but I have a document on it if people want to get a hold of it, and I cover it off in detail in the new book. But you'll get names in the New Testament that are really confusing because they use different names for the, the same Greek word for this angel order. And sometimes, as in powers, it's translated as powers into English from two separate angel orders. So there's been a re you really have to, to get the rest of the rank and the orders to go back to uh, the original Greek words. And so angels we get in both sides, angelos and melech uh, in Hebrew for angels. But there are uh, the powers, which are uh, the dunamis, and these are also, you have powerful angels that are also Icarus that are talked about in uh, the book of Revelation, and they could be talking about the same one there as the mighties, uh, but those are the ones I would classify as the mighties, but Icarus might even be one other mighty angel, but uh, you also have the rulers and the principalities, as they're translated, which is Arche. Uh, and root word for archon, an archangel. 
And you also have uh, excusia that is translated out of authority and or translated into authority and power. And so again, you have powers being coming out of dunamis and excusia, which makes it difficult. And that's not the only one. And you also have dominions, which are cortachi, if I got that pronunciation right. And then you have the angels. And so you have these pillars that come down. So I would have, I would lay it out as the seraphim oversee government over the powers as in the dunamis, or I mean, as in the uh, excusia. Uh, and then they would have an order of, messenger angels below them they also oversee the religions so the principalities and with angel messengers below that the archangels would oversee the army and you'd have the mighties under that and also the soldier angels under that and cherubim and ophanim would be i grouped together as the thrones um and that is a special sort of designation uh, as part of the watchers, and I would put the dominions under that, and they would have their fleet of angels as well. So I, I go through all of that in, in the new book and give the detail and the passages and the meanings for people so that they can follow it. And so the, that would be known as the host of heaven, Hebrew Saba, and the counterfeit order would be almost the same it's almost identical and so they would have their own throne so you not only would have the seven major thrones of the seven wandering stars represented in the council of the gods but all the gods there would have a throne for each of the nations and satan would have his own counterfeit throne and sits above that and so these thrones would be represented by other gods as those original 70 nations expanded around the world. And so you would have a branch uh, throne and God that would report up that hierarchy right up through Satan, who's the, the prince and the God of this world and wanted to raise his throne into heaven to be like God. And then as those families on earth continued to expand, there would be other branch dynasties that would sort of split off and they would use their heraldic coat of arms to have a representation for the patriarchal celestial godfather who gives them the divine right to rule from the council of gods uh, within that coat of arms and other things that would reflect their patriarchal Nephilim or Raphaim bloodline. And so you start to see a, a structure here that is one of the, the invisible that is disloyal to God and of the visible ones that are doing the beckoning of the God so they don't get their hands bloodied as they try and have as many humans destroyed from the face of the earth. And in the meantime, to try and have them wiped out so that they would not be resurrected into eternity as the inheritors of, 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 of eternity and to be like angels, but also to judge those fallen angels who did crimes against us and crimes against humanity in the future time. So it's a very complex, invisible forces that we fight against and visible that work on the ground. And then they have a thalemic tree of organizations on earth and that's the trunk organizations and then you have all of these branch organizations that go up so you might recognize freemasonry at the bottom and the family of 13 at the top for the western bloodlines that run this thalemic tree and that word thalemic that they draft for that tree comes uh, from the new testament and from the greek word god's will and it's mistranslated a couple times as passion and stuff like that as part of their doctrine of the Thelemic uh, sort of branch of polytheism that you, you can do whatever you choose and, uh, and not follow rules. But the Thelemic tree is the Greek word Thelem that they draft. So in the particular, and they use that one mistranslation to justify their own uh, polytheist rituals within uh, sections of, of polytheism, but for the gods, uh, for God's will, or the gods of Hades, the gods of Sheol, which is where these polytheist gods are believed to live, and it's the polytheist heaven, and those roots of this tree reach down into Sheol and heaven and receive their power 
and authority to rule. And so you would go up that Thelemic tree, Freemasonry, Illuminati, Rosicrucians, and that's the crossroad to the pure bloodline. So the top half of the Rosicrucians would be the pure royal bloodlines. And then above that, you would have uh, the Committee of 300 families in the West. And above that, you would have the Invisible 33 families. And then you would have the uh, 13 families. And then for the Jesuits, which people think is at the top, they're not, and you can't use a pyramid because you just run out of uh, the ability to make the structure work through a pyramid. You might want to work that through one specific organization, but not the greater Thelemic tree organizational structure. But the Jesuits would, uh, because they are, there's two groups of the black nobility that the Jesuits were sponsored by. One is the old uh, Julia Gens that goes back to Caesar Augustus. Caesar and Augustus, the senators, Romulus and Remus, as those patriarchs. And I, and I, I label all of that in the new book as well and take it back to the specific gods uh, that created Romulus and Remus. Uh, and a, a newer black nobility that come over in about 1000 AD. These are the merchants out of Phoenicia in the Middle East, and they set, settle in Venice and uh, Florence, and that's uh, sort of newer well, newer money into the, the Italian sort of culture, so to speak, and they heavily involved on banking. And I described that, that as well in the new book without getting into too much detail. And so they would intersect because they're part of the larger black nobility, which is equal with the Rex Deus, as I call them, the kings of God, or as Roy Al, as you take that back etymologically etymologically, which I also cover off in the new book as Kings of God, A-L being a transliteration for the Hebrew word E-L for an angel or a god, just as Baal would be understood as master god or lord god in the occult. And so, uh, and that's Baal who's running the council of gods after the flood versus El before the flood, which were the El and of Canaan and Kronos of Greece and Anu of Sumer were antediluvian or parent gods. And then you have offspring gods like Osiris, Baal, Zeus, uh, Anki and Enlil, just to name a few that rule after the flood. And so you have this, this whole structure of, uh, of angels that are overseeing both the invisible realm and, 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 and the physical realm that has been in place both before the flood and after the flood. And when we're talking about controlling the whole world, we are living in a sea of polytheism and it's all around us. You just have to sort of wake up and see it. What class, if there, if there be one or two or, or however many, do you think has the most direct interaction from the physical manifested lines of um, these angelic orders with us humans, you know, how do we kind of cover the chasm of this alien deception? You know, the yep. influx of our own "quote unquote" government of this earth disclosing information here to the public can be understood simplicity, simply wise, but and then it starts to get complex as you get into it. But the ones who have the greatest interaction are the priests and of the royal bloodlines and the royales the princes uh, of the world and the and the absolute nobility elite i mean they're all polytheists for the most part at the core and so they exactly. separate themselves into two groups the white hats and the black hats and <laughs> yep i've heard this before <laughs> and the same as white magic and black magic uh, good witches and evil witches they have they worship the same gods and they have the same agenda, just that the white hats say they have humankind's better interest at heart than the dark hats who would just like to eliminate us more quickly. Um, so there's a little bit of that sort of that goes on within the bloodlines and also their internal rivalries. But those are the two groups, but they all have the same end goal in mind. And they all want to bring about the Antichrist and they want humans either completely eliminated or just kept kept for the slave class and for rituals going into their dystopian new age. So after that, I would say you would have it more interaction between 
types of spurious offspring like the elementals, which would include the gray aliens and the gnomes. And the gnomes as I, uh, are the classification of the fairies that kept the technology. The UAPs come through portals and kidnap people and do experimentation on them. They would be the largest classification, but there are many kinds of elementals that are interacting. I think there's a little bit more interaction with the salamander than what we might give it credit for, and those are the reptilian-type creatures that uh, are the fourth class, and they're larger than humans, and they tend to live within the Earth and or can go back between the portals. It's, it's not real clear to me whether it's one or the other or both that they do. Well, do but they shapeshift? Are, are the reptilian class, the salamanders, are they able to present themselves as to appear human? In some accounts, I hear that that, that they do have shape-shifting capability. Um, and, but certainly the smaller elementals, most of them have shape-shifting, shape-shifting capabilities as well. So um, whether all of them have it or not, I don't know. But there are certainly classifications in each. And you know that I have a theory, and it's just my speculation is, is so we kind of understand where these little ones come from as the offspring of gods, whether it's the nymphs in Greek mythology and other ones. And you have all of these in Greek mythology and Roman mythology, these kings and queens of the fairies would get that. Um, but where do, the, where do these serpentine beings that are taller than humans come from? Because you don't really get much of a creation myth on that one. Um, so I, I have a theory that if you could either recreate uh, beings after the flood, which they, the, the offsprings, offspring gods, I believe, did with giants and with uh, the Gamadim, for example, the little ones. And a Gamad comes out of Hebrew as being a cubit, so 18 inches because they wouldn't be royal as being the height. And there's the Gamadim that are shown in the book of Ezekiel, I think in Ezekiel 26 in the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the invasions into Tyre where these Gamadim were fighting in the towers. We only get it once, but we get some little people in there. Um, and so if they could recreate these things after the flood, uh, just as they did before the flood, or they survived, there's two ways of this happening, or it might even be both, um, you know, a second incursion of all of these creatures and some survival, then you could en envision that the fallen angels through that method, whether in the earth, off the earth, on arcs, on ships, on spaceships, um, in other dimensions, however they did it, that they could have saved beings from before the flood, including giants, and or protected ones that were recreated after the flood through these interdimensional travel or however they did that. And that might include either survival or recreation of an interesting being that shows up in Genesis 3 called the serpent. And that's the Hebrew word Nahash. And the Nahash is the species that is punished for deceiving Eve. Uh, and it's not Satan, who is punished because he doesn't actually do it. He might either coach or he might be an avatar of the avatar to get him over the hump, just as he did that with Judas to, to go through with the betrayal of Jesus. But it is the Nahash and the whole species that are punished in, in the Eden account. And so this is a beast of the field, as it's talked about in Genesis 3. And the beasts of the fields are created just before humans are on day six. And they seem to be, as you take that word back into its meaning in Hebrew and its source words, it has necromancy and enchanter and words like that. So they seem to have been images after the image of the seraphim angels, the serpentine, serpent-faced angels, and that they seem to have been polytheists and leaders over most of creation before the people of day six are created in or Adam in, in Eden. And it's the Nahash that is doing this beckoning just as all the spurious offspring do for the fallen angels and all the ones that they can get 
from humankind to follow them, kind of like Renberg of Dracula, if you want to use that sort of analogy. Um, oh, I wow. got the name right. Yeah, that's yeah. how they that's how they look at the useful idiots, as the other term that they like to call us in plain sight, uh, who follow their ways uh, to to do their beckoning. And so those reptilians might be a form of the original Nahash. Oh, and in the Gnostic Gospels, they were as tall as a camel, so they were bigger than humans. Interesting. Yeah, they're, they're a big topic of conversation. I, I know we've even, you know, talked about these Nahash and the, the reptilians and and this stuff over the years. And, there, you know, there's some interesting stuff like uh, the ancient traditions. Um, I mean, just like we covered Sinocephali, Dogman, right, Lichens. Yeah. Um, that route also can be covered with the reptilians in where it bleeds out in culture and in language. But one thing that comes to mind on them is there's a group of Indians in California that had an oral tradition saying that they came from lizard-like people under the earth. And the Hopi have a similar tradition mm. that it's the white snake clan, but they, yes. after the flood, uh, that come from an island in the ocean. So similar accountings, right? Whether you believe the the thing that happened in Miami is actually aliens that touched down or not, I've heard all sides of the argument. I'm not taking a position on it. I think it's provocative to say the least. I'm always watching and trying to, you know, make sense of where we're at. But how much of this stuff do you think is is uh, Project Blue Beam, if I can say it that way, or what do you call that, Gary? Where it's a, a three dimensional depiction, they use lasers, a hologram. Yeah. How much of this stuff that's happening right now do you think is they're setting the stage to deceive yeah. people in order for them to use it as a Hegelian dialectic tactic, if I can say it that way? Yeah, I haven't done a deep dive into what happened in Florida a few weeks ago, um, but what I I have learned about it is that uh, this was a massive response by first uh, responders and particularly the police. So they were getting multiple reports. So whatever it was, whether it was a staged hoax or actually reality of something that they weren't quite ready for us to know all about, it still either or would go to a preparation. And you don't get that kind of response from the police unless there's something going on. What I found of note was the size of the giants were sort of commonly described as 12 feet tall. Now, I didn't get enough other descriptions to, yeah. to, to verify because I have a fair bit of information on, on what the giants were like. But you know, 12 foot is not an unusual size for a giant after the flood versus before the flood where they would be taller. So in... The Bible, we get Goliath, who's six cubits in a span. And so he would be on a royal cubit, 11 feet, three inches tall. So he's in that zone. Og's bed was um, <clears throat> was nine cubits tall and or long and four cubits wide. So seven feet wide and almost 16 feet tall using the royal cubit with him being the king of Edriah and Ashtaroth and Ugarit. And so... You have this uh, size where he would fit into a bed that's 15 to 16 feet tall, and he'd be somewhere between 12 and 14 to 15 feet tall, depending on how tight he wants that fit. And the dimensions represented his size. And I didn't get a, I haven't verified the two to one height ratio or stocky or stout, as is the term that's used in the KGV. And in the new book, I'll use that term a lot, take that back to Hebrew to tell you how you know it's part of the, the, the markers for, for finding uh, the description of giants in, in the Old Testament. Uh, and so 12 foot, though, is, is, is kind of in that zone where Og would be 12 to 14 feet tall. So that sort of fits from a biblical perspective. Yeah, it does. You, you, also, you also get heights uh, of like Achilles of post-Diluvian giants uh, with the offspring gods, uh, from Mount Olympus, uh, like with uh, Achilles, who is 12 feet tall, or Orontes, that's found, um, that's the name of, you know, named after the river Orontes, or vice versa, where the Greeks found this 12-foot giant. And 12-foot is kind of a standard sizing in post-Diluvian giants in Greek mythology. So 
without belaboring it, you get references throughout history to a size that is in this zone versus the smaller giants, which are seven to nine feet tall, which are hybrid giant and humans. So different between difference between that and the other giants or the Raphaim giants are uh, and Nephilim were a hybrid from angelic beings and humans. So this is after the flood where there's a fertility issue with the uh, giants they need to procreate and they're going to intermarry with like the patriarchless Canaanites, for example, uh, to create uh, a hybrid race that the execration texts in Egypt called the Shazu. So you get uh, another group that is smaller and lower in the hierarchy that you could put into the bloodlines uh, as the start of the bloodline descendancy that took over the royal thrones because they had to continue to intermarry because of the fertility issue. You know, we, we have plenty of uh, information to understand that the average height of a normal human back in these biblical times would have been a lot shorter than today. I think the average height today is about six foot, right? Yep. Five ten. Yep. Um, so if you look five at the, to the, five eight back then. Yeah. Have... So I mean, you know, a, a eight or ten or even twelve footer, it, it's kind of like you know, at a six foot uh, height span today, you kind of want to add a little bit more to it. If yeah. you were to use the imagination of being physically in front of one of these guys, you know, uh, yeah, and eye King to Saul. chest, if you will, <laughs> yeah, but and King, and, and king the Saul that, is chosen as a king as the first. He's head king and shoulders. Because, yeah, he's a head and shoulders taller than the rest, so he would yeah. have been giant like and warrior like to take on these giants that would have made him look small. So he was probably over six feet, but. He was yeah. still small by comparison to even the hybrids compared to Correct. the purebloods. And with the way the uh, scouts embellished the Nephilim application for Anakim as the children of giants, the Nephilim as opposed to Rephaim, which they're described as in Deuteronomy 2 with the patriarch after the flood being Arba, um, who's not in the table of nations because uh, Rephaim patriarchs are not in the table of nations that only comes from noah uh, as survivors of the flood in the 70 nations and so you have these uh these giants that are uh described as not only just taller but wider and a whole bunch of other sort of attributes that go along with them that uh, is something that we need to be wary of because if we have to deal with these beings in reality, yeah, looking into their chest might be <laughs> not <laughs> quite what we're looking into. They're very <laughs> it might, robust. It could be a little lower, <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Well, and this and, is the interesting thing is, is I have seen these creatures in dreams. You know, I've talked about this many episodes ago, actually here on the Mustard Seed. I had a dream where I'm crying out, to the Lord and this like lightning is uh, shocking the sky and hindering this 10 to 14 footer. I've also talked with people who physically seen giants, talk to them even face to face. And these people have nothing to gain, right? They're not, well, one of the people in particular does not want to come on air because they don't want to be ridiculed. Although I think the tables are turning where more and more people are going to uh, less ridicule and more interest, Gary. But a couple years ago, you couldn't really get many people to talk about stuff. So I, it's interesting, you know, maybe 20 minutes ago, 30 minutes ago, you were talking about um, the orders of angels and how there's this cloaking ability, the interdimensional aspect that some of these creatures have. And it's just fascinating because the, the whole Miami thing, the reason I brought it up is because some of the people are saying that it's like they were translucent in a sense, like they were kind of glitching in and out. My first thought was like, well, is that technology that's failing from powers that be in this physical world only? Or is that actually something that's kind of starting to come through this fading veil, if I can say it that way. So I yeah, think everything so you had to say would, on that is super fascinating. Yeah. And so that would involve angelic technology to project their image. Uh -huh. So if they're spirit, exactly. disembodied spirits, and you're talking about that holographic thing, so to give that sort of look interdimensionally, you know, requires what we're just type of learning today with quantum mechanics, right? And mm -hmm. um, 
AI to be able to make those types of things happen. Uh, and so it could be part of a, introducing people to ancient sort of concepts again, and it could be also a demonstration of the angelic type of technology that is being done and that it's not being projected yet from the other side. It's an experimentation and development as to what has been given to this side, to humans and the, the spurious offspring to develop uh, and maybe sort of a test from that um sort of understanding. So, you know, in the Ugaritic texts, where you have the Raphaim, you know, you have the Baal and Ashtaroth who create the uh, post-Diluvian giants and they rule from Mount Hermon or Mount Saphon, as it's called in the Ugaritic texts. And Ashtaroth and Adrai, Edrai is, you know, city of Og, but also the city of, 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 of Baal and the Council of Gods, and that they're asking them to come they're asking them to come back to recreate giants because of that fertility issue uh, in the in their fertility rituals in the Ugaritic texts and the RPM, the RPM. Not only are they described as giants and royal bloodlines and dynastic, and you have the council of not only the gods but the Datanu or Datanu. Um, you also have their ability to heal and their ability to, to not just heal themselves, but other people, and to go back and forth between the realms. Just as Baal would go daily through the cave at Mount Hermon, the gateway to Hades, to inspect his uh, realm in, in, the, in, in the other world, and then return uh, to the Council of the Gods on Mount Hermon, uh, the Rephiam had the ability to do that as well. And so... I think that there's a connection there that we can take out of prehistory because this moving back between the worlds is an occult pillar doctrine. Uh, and it's sort of constitutional that that was the ability that has been sort of lost over years. And now that ability seemingly is coming back. And I think that is coming back through the help of the invisible ones who are, you know, providing that angelic technology the angelic ability, uh, you know, according to the way that they were created, um, what our technology is mimicking is the ability of these angelic beings, right? So it's kind of like we're, we're seeing a major influx in today's day and age on the technology end of things, you know, frequency and computers. And I mean, come on, it's just, it's too long of a list for me to even attempt to try to get into, but the technology is there. All of this stuff is present. And the more we learn about, you know, angels and what the occult is doing, this twisting and this uh, corruption and merging the lines where, you know, spiritual abilities are now somewhat being able to be mimicked through the presence of technology and the increase of so. It's very fascinating. You did mention something a bit ago about stars, and I don't hear it talked about too much. What can you tell me about the significance of stars? multi-layered right physical and from a spiritual aspect and how do they interact or what do they have to do with us especially in the days that we live in yeah it's a good question so angels are called stars both in the new and the old testament and just as antichrist will bring down some of the starry host um uh -huh. at the midpoint of the last seven years <laughs> and that you know the stars are are seemingly uh one is associated for each of the angels uh whether they're loyal or disloyal um and we don't know whether or not the disloyal ones had their stars blacked out or they're still there and that is part of what happens in in the future but yeah, stars are uh, associated uh, allegorically with fallen angels and loyal angels. So you have host of heaven, starry host. Uh, you have morning stars in Job 38, 4 through 7 with the sons of God. So two again groups. Uh, and so you have angels, host, uh, sons of God, stars, uh, all used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament, and then you get similar usage in, in the New Testament. So we need to understand that they are a physical 
light that's in the uh, outside the universe, uh, outside the firmament, and that they are also represent allegorically or one specifically in its honor of its creation um, uh, to be a, a star sort of that's associated with them. And as you move up the realm, you also get sort of planets associated with the gods as well. Uh, Again, associated with the seven wandering stars that are in all the different pantheons around the world for the top ones. So, yeah, uh, stars are something that we need to sort of understand that. Uh, and we have a star that's used in Revelation 9. And, you know, typically what happens in Revelation 9 when it's referring to the angels, um, you know, you would expect this would be a loyal angel, but it says a star fell from the earth or fell to the earth to open up the abyss where the offspring gods are and the parent gods who did the same crimes after the flood were sent and where the worst of the demons are, as described as the terrible ones in Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah 14, locked into the sides of the abyss, will come out of just before the midpoint of the last seven years. So is that a angel or is that a falling star? And in the occult tradition, they would say it's going to be a fallen angel that has the ability to open up and has the key to that abyss, which would be sort of understood as a matrix or a technology that's multidimensional because the pit prison is in Sheol or Hades in another dimension, in a separate place in Sheol and Hades, and again, distinct from the location from where the lake of fire is. And so in the, the angelic technology, it has the keys to interdimensional crossovers. And so this could be the technology to be able to, to do that. And so in the occult tradition, Azazel isn't locked in the pit prison as he's recorded as being locked in as the king of the, of the watchers that were sent to the abyss, but is hung in Orion and is hung upside down in, horizon, horizon, uh, in Orion. And in that tradition, he returns to the earth as that falling star and lets out all of these prisoners in, in the pit prison. So I think we're going to see interesting references to the stars, but whatever they do with that, that is leading us in a different direction because their heaven is in Hades and they, all the aliens and this descriptions of aliens, which is just really part of the spurious offspring and, and the changeling capability, they don't come from other planets. They come interdimensionally. So we need to sort of understand the ancient understanding of these terms so that when they start rolling out the propaganda, we'll be able to sort of take that back biblically and say, no, no, this is what it really means. Getting people interested in looking with the Berean mentality and being unashamed to go into these areas is it's long overdue. It's not even cute or fun. Like this is a war that we're in and this information is important, Gary. And just as the years go on, just, the, you know, the deeper that I go, but also still playing on the surface and the simplicity of all the things we're called to, to do and believe in Christ Jesus. These two worlds are, are coming together in the sense where it's not, there's not too much separation. There's not a sacred secular divide in my world, at least much anymore with all of these topics and super fascinating with stars. I, I got a hundred more questions on it, but we're not going to beat the horse with, uh, with all my weird quirky questions at this point in time. What I'd like to ask you to do here for this uh, episode, Gary, is just give us a brief overview of, you know, where some of this kind of stuff can be found in your book. Let's talk uh, for a minute about the upcoming release. We're hoping this is very soon here in March. Yeah, so um, the book is has a March 12th release date, hoping for a sooner release date and hoping to have books, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so I'll, I'll just sort of quickly uh, uh, talk about the structure of the book. It uh, has 84 chapters, but each chapter is a mini chapter, and it's designed to present a story and most of the information that you need for researching a specific topic. I have seven sections in book two. The first one is called Giants, Demons, and Angels. Uh, 
And so in there, I'm going to go through how we know there's a connection to the days of Noah and Lot uh, from a prophetic perspective. I'm going to talk about the giants of old and the etymology of that. I'm going to describe Nephilim, Gibberim, and uh, Raphaim and tell you the difference. I'm going to tell you about demons, devils, and unclean spirits and show you how we can biblically take that back. I'm going to give you uh, a good case for second incursion. And I'm going to also provide uh, something called the Oikotarian or the habitation for angels and explain that uh, in terms of where the spirit dwells, both in heaven and on earth, and the, how you get to those changeling sort of capabilities with the Oikotarian. Section two is the hierarchy of the Nephilim. And that's where you really get into, uh, go deeper into who Satan is and where he fits. Uh, I give you uh, the angelic order, both counterfeit and, and loyal. Um, I get into the Balim assembly at Mount Hermon. I get into Mount Hermon in deep. I start introducing Ugarit and Sumer and those mountains into this, this uh, particular line. Uh, of thought. And then I'm going to go through after laying that down, I'm going to provide in section three, the hybrids that are listed biblically and give you a few more as well that aren't in there biblically, but show you how we know they're hybrids and how we can take that back to a patriarch. So for example, uh, the Archites or the Arvidites out of the Canaanite, Canaanite uh, nine patriarchless uh, nations, uh, all the other Nations in the table of nations have patriarchs except for the nine. And then I'm going to go through all the different types of giants in section four on the post-Diluvian Raphaim world order. And, uh, you know, that's going to include names that you may not have associated with giants like the Cherethim or the Cadmonim or the, uh, the Gesherim or the Jebelim. Uh, and I'm going to go through as many as I identified, and there's a lot, and take those back to particular patriarchs. And then I'm going to start moving into the wars of, uh, of uh, the War of Giants in Genesis 14 and all of the Exodus wars, and right through the time of King Solomon, and identify how you know they're fighting against giants all the way through that and, and show you the giants and the bloodlines. And then in section six, I'm going into prehistory, history, and prophecy is a section name. And I'm doing the link transition from prehistory into prophecy. And in the first parts of the book, I've identified the prehistory terms to help you understand the allegories of end time prophecy. So I'm going to go through a whole bunch of things like that. And in that section, I'll cover off the uh, Jesuits, who I didn't call cover off in uh, book one, and the Thelemic tree that I talked about in the Montessa Order of Francis Borgia. And then I'm going to move into section seven, which is all uh, prophecy. So it's the fig tree generation. And I'm going to be using that when I'm talking about the four horsemen, the seven hills of Babylon, um, the time of Jacob's trouble, all the way through to Armageddon. I'm going to use those terms that we used in, in the first half. And I'm going to lay down a chronology that you can rely on, I think, for end time prophecy. And in the preface, I give you my approach to prophecy uh, the preface of the book and the 10 major points that I use to keep me on side. Things like um, I put everything around what Jesus said, not vice versa, as the word of God. And that includes Revelation. And I'll show you how you can understand Revelation in in uh, in this book as well. And just overlay it up because it's, it's the testimony of Jesus Christ. So it has to fit with his template in Matthew 24. So that's the essential book, and it's going to sort of uh, open some eyes and, and, and in a way that hasn't been done before because it goes so deep into the Bible that it is, I think it's the most unique book that's out there outside of the Bible. So the best way to get hold of me is through my website, the Genesis6Conspiracy.com. That's the number 6Conspiracy.com. On that website, there's a contact the author. So if you want to ask me, uh, ask me a question or ask me for a document that I might have mentioned, um, get a hold of me through that. It might take me three to four weeks to get back to you, but I will get back to you. And on the website, there's a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of book one. 
in all 84 chapters of book two. And on the website, you can get a signed copy for book one and pre-order for book two. There's now a link on Amazon for the digital edition, and I'm trying to get that up on my website uh, with a new cover look on the website um, for book two as well. Um, that should, I'm just need to get some time from my web guy to just finish all of that off. But you can still pre-order a digital for me. Uh, you have to order from Amazon anyways. I have links over to Amazon.com from the buy page, BarnesandNoble.com, um, Amazon.ca, and for the Kindle edition. And if you live in the U.S., there's a Canada buy page. If you live in the U.S., there's a U.S. buy page. If you live in anywhere else in the world, there's an international page to buy from to get a signed book. Man, you're a wealth of information. I just, uh, wow, exciting to be able to have this conversation with you and, and for this release of book two. And, and like you said, each chapter really can be used to dive into that uh, specific you know, topic and study to help people make sense of what's going on in the time slot we're living in. Unbelievably cool, Gary. Well, man, we, we are going to... Uh, end this part one of a, a two-part series here for everybody on the mustard seed we want to make the bible not only cool to read again but it is real and it is um has spoken that which is to come to pass that hasn't happened yet and scary we have some interesting topics for your next appearance so everyone should anticipate a part two here it was an honor to have you back on the show again gary thank you well, thank you. It was fun. And that's it. That's the show, you guys. Share it with a friend, family member, a co-worker. Share it with your pastor. Coming to you from southeastern Pennsylvania. Goodbye. Let's take like a five minute break open. real quick. I got yeah. I got a pee. Yeah, so. <laughs> yep. uh, I'll just meet you back here in a couple minutes, man. No no pressure, and I'll see you when you get back. Okay. Thanks. All right. Okay. And Can back you hear me? You? All right. I, Perfect. Okay. So. All right. What do we have here? All right, Gary. If you can just do another intro for me. Um, just, you know, say who you are and welcome us to the Millennium Mustard Seed and we'll jump right into this part two. Ready whenever you are, sir. Hello, everybody. I'm Gary Wayne and happy to be back on the Mustard, Millennial Mustard Seed. I'm going to start this again, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So. Here you are. No, I needed to laugh. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> That's actually really good. Oh, that felt great. Yeah.